Hi everyone, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo, I'm the author of the film review website Quipster.net. I invite you to check out all of my reviews, over 4,000 to read anytime at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, you can also find a link to my other podcast called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I cover films that are out in the theaters currently, as well as others that have appeared in the last few years. You can find all the information there at Quipster.net. Today we're going to be continuing on with the films, the Superman films, kind of the dregs of the Superman films. We did Superman 3 on the previous episode. This week we're going to go into a film that was not quite part of the Superman series. It's more of a spin-off. However, it did come out the following year from Superman 3. So sequentially, chronologically, it was the next movie in this franchise. It is called Supergirl. It came out in 1984. It stars Helen Slater and Faye Dunaway primarily, Peter Cook, Hart Bachner, Brenda Vaccaro, Maureen Tiefney, Peter O'Toole, Mark McClure, and Mia Farrow appear in the film. The director is Jeannot Zwark, and the screenplay is credited to David O'Dell. Now, before I get to the review, I do want to play a little clip from this movie because it really exemplifies kind of uh, how I feel about the movie. And I must ask you all something. It's all right, Supergirl. We never saw you. We never even heard of you. If only I could have said the same after watching Supergirl. Now, as far as the plot goes of this film, Helen Slater is the main star. She plays Kara, who's this young woman who lives in this peaceful interdimensional or inner space, as they call it, this place called Argo City, where additional surviving Kryptonians reside in this microverse of sorts. They reside for reasons that the film mostly ignores in terms of trying to explain. Kara's uncle, Zaltar, played by Peter O'Toole, he's one of the denizens there. He allows her to utilize this powerful orb called the Omega Hedron. The city needs the Omega Hedron in order to continue to survive. Not that you'd know that its critical value to all life among the populace of Argo City is there from the way that no one seems to know that it's actually missing or how Zaltar kicks it around willy-nilly. But there's this accident that sees the Omega Hedron break through the surface of the contained city and shoot out into space. Kara decides upon herself to go after the Omega Hedron. She uses her artist Uncle Zaltar's homemade escape pod. He just happened to have been making one. He, and she uses it to shuttle her to Earth, specifically Midvale, Illinois, where there's this Popeye's Chicken and Biscuits restaurant. That's the hottest spot in town. That's how small this town is. Kara ends up fitting in among the people there by changing her appearance. She assumes this alter ego of this American prep school student named Linda Lee. Thankfully, the people of Argo City happen to have all known English because Kara speaks it to others on Earth very fluently and without much effort. She's there until she can locate the orb using this locator device on her bracelet she just happens to have. She also discovers that she has superpowers akin to her cousin, who happens to be Superman, that allows her to do the same things that he can fly and shoot beams of heat with her eyes and see through most objects. Meanwhile, the Omega Hedron ends up in the hands of a fledgling sorceress in the same town called Selina. She happens to use the device for her own selfish purposes. However, Kara, as both Linda and Supergirl, keeps getting in Selina's way to becoming the powerful witch that she desperately really wants to be. And with Selina's power growing and not much time before Argo City itself dies, Kara must find a way to get back the Omega Hedron and to restore it to its proper place in Argo City before Selina grows too powerful to stop. Now, Supergirl is set up as the first film in what would turn out to be a failed attempt to jumpstart a dying series into an offshoot franchise. 
This was the first major superhero film with a woman in the lead role. Unfortunately, as a franchise, it would fall victim to the same kind of thinking that marred the series that it spun off from, Superman. Superman 3 was released just the year before, and the taste in many fans' mouths would already be bad enough by the time this less-than-stellar superhero treatment had been released. The first intended cut of Supergirl proved to be a trial of endurance for preview audiences. The producers eventually gutted it down due to the poor test screenings from an original two and a half hours in length just before it hit theaters. International audiences saw a little bit longer cut, 124 minutes. U.S. audiences witnessed more severe rollbacks of the runtime. They had a 105-minute version. The U.S. version jettisoned a good deal of the Argo City scenes, Supergirl's graceful early flying sequences, and some Midville high scenes that many who witnessed them claimed to be very uninteresting. Now, the franchise was given to French director Gino Zwark. He got the gig on Christopher Reeve's recommendation because they had just worked together on Somewhere in Time in 1980. And this came after the Salkins' initial choices of Richard Lester, who did work on Superman 2 and directed all of Superman 3. He declined, as well as their next choice, Robert Wise, who directed Sound of Music and a whole lot of other pretty big movies from the 60s, 70s, into the 80s. So Swark had the unenviable task of trying to comply with the demands of the Salkins and have to direct this movie based on a property he wasn't terribly familiar with. And despite gutting his film, the Salkins did enjoy working with Swark, enough to do so again on their very next film after this one, 1985's Santa Claus the Movie. So the practice of studio tripping films just before release, that often wipes away all sense of a movie's explanations and its pacing, but given what was remnant in this film, it would appear that the folks who were responsible for cutting this film down may have been a bit merciful on not wasting any more time for the audiences that had paid to see it back in 1984. Now, subsequent releases on DVD, Blu-ray, streaming, whatever, beef up the runtime, and it gets nearly back up to the original length. There is even a, an extended cut of this that pretty much is the cut that they wanted to go with. It does fill in a few important character details here and there, but the biggest liability to Supergirl that being the script, still inhibits it from soaring to the kind of heights of Superman's debut back in 1978. Now, as is often common for projects that are built with making money in mind, the makers of Supergirl really don't have a lot of authentic love or caring for the character at the center of their movie, or for the character's fans from her appearances in comic book form. The original intent for the film was for Christopher Reeve to reprise playing Superman in a very small role in order to introduce his cousin to Earth, and to teach her how to harness her new powers. But when push came to shove, Christopher Reeve eventually declined to appear. He felt that he had already closed the book on the character, and that resulted in a lack of proper exposition for Kara's coming out as Supergirl. It's really left to your imagination as to how she ends up knowing how to do all of the things she ends up doing. And much of the backstory of Argo City, which appears to be in space at the beginning of the film, and then it's accessed under a body of water on Earth toward the end, some sort of portal, I guess and the nature of Supergirl's powers and the origin of her and her traditional costume, those are left mostly to our imagination. There's really not a lot of exposition as to how we get to going full Supergirl in this film. There's this very abbreviated setup we're just left to assume has to conform to that of Kal-El as told in the original Superman film. It certainly did not do the film's chances of success any good that the script underwent a plethora of rewrites, many of them happening to occur on a daily basis through out the film's shoot, which resulted in a lot more messiness and a lot of directions that they weren't sure whether they wanted to go or not. 
and the lack of adequate character development and a rock-solid origin, those are shameful when you actually see what they deem to put into the story in their place. There are extended scenes of trivial matters. You get Selena going full cougar, trying to get the Studley School groundskeeper Ethan to fall for her through the spell. You also see a lot of moments of Kara's heroism at the boarding school against conniving bullies. Those all do little to enhance the story at large that you're paying to come see. And other than its gorgeous score from Jerry Goldsmith, it's a beautiful score, as you heard during the intro to this podcast, and you will hear again as we get into our outro. Goldsmith actually was Richard Donner's first choice above John Williams when he was considering composers for his original Superman. And if there's anything beyond that that keeps this film from bogging down to nearly intolerable levels, it's probably due to pretty good casting in the important roles. You got 19-year-old Helen Slater. She was a total newcomer. She beat out well-known actresses like Brooke Shields and Melanie Griffith and Demi Moore, who was also considered for the role of Lucy Lane. Slater proves to have the looks. She has the grace. She has the character to play the goody-goody neophyte perfectly. Helen Slater at the time followed in Christopher Reeve's footsteps. She signed a three-picture option with the Salkins, but due to the lack of success for this first entry, it didn't quite pan out for her continuation in the role on the big screen. Now, as far as the top billing of this film, it goes to consummate scenery chewer Faye Dunaway. She scored the role after a couple of actresses turned down the film. Actually, three well-known actresses at least. Dolly Parton, Goldie Hawn, and Jane Fonda took a pass. But Dunaway is quite charismatic in her high camp role as Selena. She's the scheming sideshow sorceress. Selena literally lives in a haunted house attraction in this rundown amusement park. And then she ends up willing herself through her magic, a castle on a mountain somehow that happens to be nearby. Her pettiness drives her to make silly blunders. But unfortunately for Dunaway, her performance was not lauded at the time of this release. She earned a, a Razzie nomination, the Golden Raspberry Award nomination. And so did Peter O'Toole for his flamboyantly pained portrayal of Zoltar. And unfortunately, despite having a game cast to make a good film, the contrived situations and the contrived dialogue are also a disappointment to the film. In one of the most forced examples of economy of characters, you got Supergirl, who happens to be Clark Kent's cousin. Not only is she in the United States just like he is, but she happens to attend the same school as Lois Lane's cousin, Lucy. But they're also roommates in that school. What a coincidence. And furthermore, Selena's partner in sorcery, her one of her sidekicks, Nigel, is also one of Linda Lee's teachers at her school. And meanwhile, Jimmy Olsen, who's played once again by Superman series Mark McClure, he's the only one to appear in all the Superman films, including Supergirl, he happens to be in town. Apparently, he's dating the teenage sister of his co-worker Lois in Lucy, despite living a thousand miles away. I guess everybody happens to know each other, even though they come from widely different places. Now, the effects of the film, the visual effects, are, even by the standards of 1984, a bit antiquated. You have phony backdrops, a lot of matting, plenty of magical doohickeys that look like they're battery-operated toys. They're used here as special effects. You have sets primarily located at Pinewood Studios, which happens to be where the Superman films were also filmed, but it does look like sets most of the time. However, they do a pretty decent job in convincing us that Supergirl can fly, and Zwark insisted that the style of flight for Supergirl should be, in contrast to Superman's, hers should be graceful and elegant. Definitely sets her apart from the more urgent and determined mechanics employed by her cousin Superman. But it's a shame that these moments of aesthetic beauty that capture some of the early scenes of Supergirl on Earth are relatively few and far between. 
Meanwhile, the Salkins would botch up the Superman franchise by trying to make them into comedies. They admirably temper, though, the all-out gags in Supergirl. Perhaps a little too much at times. Some of the things that we're supposed to take at face value as deadly serious, they do stretch the ability to feel like they carry the weight intended. It's a little too silly to take some of the more peril-filled moments as truly catastrophic, and yet the tone is not really set up properly to think that the campiest scenes are altogether meant to be tongue-in-cheek humorous. So it's not really funny in the slightest, but at the same time, it's also a little bit too laughable in many respects when it tries to take itself seriously. Now, Supergirl, as a project, it really should have been a slam dunk. I mean, we like Superman. We like attractive actors in respectably flattering outfits. We like superhero films that have an interesting mythos and the ability to create a sense of fun from that. And while the Superman tie-in and the cute girl are there, it's those last bits, the interesting mythos, the sense of fun, that are too often missing from this fits-and-starts attempt to capitalize on an already fading franchise. So as a result, it was a major flop at the box office. It took in a paltry $14 million on a budget, at least three times that. So a big miss here, not one that was likely to continue beyond this for reasons. If they were trying to make money off it, they certainly did not do that. They weren't going to continue up with another. If we were to ask the Salkins, the producers of the film, whose Supergirl would represent their final effort to bring the stories of Kryptonian heroes to the big screen, why they have such little regard for these characters and the fans that love them, their response might echo that of one of the would-be rapists that Supergirl inquires of when she first appears on Earth. She asked their motivation for being so tenaciously malignant, and the response was, from Matt Frewer in a very small role here, that's just the way we are. And I guess the Salkins are just that way too. They really looked at these properties as a means to make money and did not have a lot of high regard for uh, giving us stories that the fans deserved and maybe even people unfamiliar deserved as well. Now, Helen Slater would come back to the world of Supergirl. She appeared in several episodes of the TV show that started in 2015 as Eliza Danvers. She's the adoptive mother of Kara on that show. And prior to this, she also played Superman's Kryptonian birth mother, Lara, on a few episodes of TV Smallville. And she also voiced Superman's adoptive mother, Martha Kent, on an episode of the animated TV show called DC Superhero Girls. So a little bit of trivia for you there. As far as the film goes, though... It's a movie I used to really hate, I think, back in the 1980s. I've softened up a little bit over the years because I've seen a lot worse. But it's still not a good movie. It's not one that I would out and out recommend, even though there are a lot of elements I really like, including the casting here. I think that the film could have been a lot of fun if they really wanted to put a little bit more effort than what they end up giving. So I'm going to give Supergirl from 1984 two stars out of four. Two stars on my scale means that it's lacking something vital that would keep it from being something that I would wholeheartedly recommend to most people. And that which it's lacking is just a clear direction of where they wanted to go with the material and an adherence to some sort of respectability for its own property. I feel like they didn't really take the film seriously. I don't think they took audiences seriously. I think they just wanted to throw it out there and know that there is a fan base for Superman that would come out to see the film. It did not pan out for them. And I guess thankfully, because I really would not have wanted to see how far this film series would have digressed, much like the Superman films, which started off on a high note and ended up getting pretty abysmal. And speaking of abysmal, 
We're going to get into that on the very next film, the final Superman film I'm going to be reviewing on this podcast, at least for a while. I don't know if there's any other animated versions or any other kinds of Superman films out there, but but we're going to cap off the Superman films with the very final Superman film, and it actually brought back Christopher Reeve for it, and Margot Kidder as Lois Lane, and Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor. Yes, it brought them all back for Superman for the Quest for Peace in 1987, and that will be on the very next podcast episode. So, so Superman 4, The Quest for Peace from 1987. Click the subscribe button if you haven't done so already and you'll hear my review of that one considered one of the worst films. Tune in on the next episode and you'll find out. Until next time, thanks everyone for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Mm-hmm.